everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Right Words podcast. I am Hayley Walsh, your host, author of Lighthearted Fiction, and of course, I'm coming to you from the wonderful city of Sydney. If, like me, you love to read, I encourage you to join in the Australian Reading Hour, which is happening on the 14th of September for the initiative called Australia Reads. There are wonderful events happening all over the country, encouraging people to read just that little bit more. There are events in libraries and schools, and I'm very proud to be an ambassador this year. Now, talking about everything Australian, I am thrilled to be bringing you a really lovely interview with the wonderful and very talented author, Mary Lou Stevens, author of the book, titled The Last of the Apple Blossom. This is an epic family drama and I was lucky enough to receive an advanced reader copy and I love the book so much I just knew I had to interview the author about the inspiration behind it. I don't want to give too much away so without further ado let's go to my chat with Mary Lou. Welcome, Mary Lou, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's very exciting to have you here today. Oh, Hayley, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Now, you are currently, you currently live in um, sunny Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the book that we're going to be talking about today is actually set in Tasmania. You were born in Tassie um, and grew up in Hobart. So what do you remember about your childhood growing up in Tassie and what do you love about Tasmania? <laughs> What do I remember? I remember it being really, really cold. Yep. (laughs) It does get very cold. Absolutely. My dad, his brother, my uncle and a friend all helped build each other's houses and um, with this concrete wall building machine thing. So the walls in our house were a little bit crooked, but um, our house would have been perfect for Queensland. um, The living room was massive with... um, floor to ceiling glass you know and this big veranda and it just meant that the lounge room was always freezing we had a, um, a freestanding fireplace but we all just had to crowd around it to try and stay warm <laughs> I bet <laughs> in Hobart you need smaller rooms that you can contain and keep the heat in but yeah and I remember when I was living in Sydney I said to a friend one day oh I remember when you used to walk to school and crack the ice on the puddles and she looked at me and she went Mary Lou I grew up in Sydney there was never ice on the puddles no definitely not (laughs) but look on the plus side anyone who hasn't been to Tassie um, it's such a beautiful place and the scenery is absolutely stunning so the view from the window I imagine would have been lovely Oh, it was. And that's the thing about Hobart, especially just about everybody has a water view because the houses are built along the Derwent Estuary and up the river and there's just water everywhere. So it is. Look, Hobart is gorgeous. Tasmania is really, really beautiful. And I and I do love it. So, so many scenic spots. But when I was growing up in Tassie, Tasmania was actually very depressed. Um, the population was going backwards. There mm-hmm. were no jobs. Um, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't a lot, of, a lot of money around and it didn't have this kind of beautiful wilderness experience, um, national park walks, gorgeous food and, and alcohol and produce that, well, it had the beautiful produce, but it wasn't the thing that it's become. So it was yeah. a very different, very different place when I was growing up there. Yeah. Look, I've been to Tassie a couple of times and it's just, it's like a different world down there. It's absolutely beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it is. Now, we will come to um, the book that we're going to talk about today, 
but I wanted to talk to you about your background. So you obviously have a real passion for the arts because you've studied acting at the Victorian College of the Arts. You've worked in radio, so you're probably more equipped to actually conduct this interview than I am, <laughs> to be honest no. with you. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and you played in bands. So in 2013, you published a memoir titled Sex, Drugs and Meditation. So it obviously incorporates many of that, you know, of those times in your life. And the book sounds like it was a real incredible emotional journey. Do you care to share more with us about the memoir? Sounds very interesting. Yes, the memoir. Um, so I used to read a lot of self-help books and I, I kind of skimmed over everything you were supposed to do and I never did the exercises at the end of each chapter I went straight for the case studies because they're stories. They're stories about people. And I found the case studies fascinating. And yeah. I think we as humans have story in our DNA. I think we're hardwired for it. We just love stories. So when I did this first 10-day silent meditation retreat, and it honestly did change my life, it, it saved my job and it helped me find a husband, I went, wow, you know, I've actually just lived a case study, if you like. I wonder mm. if anyone would be interested in reading it. So I started writing this book and um, I had a little bit of interest from an agent. She said, send me everything you've got. And this is a word of warning for any writers. Never, ever send first draft material. I was such a novice, Hayley. I really was. Right. So I sent 50,000 words of first draft material and this agent just went completely cold on it and she went, no, nah, you've gone off track. Um, if you're going to write this, you need to be really, really honest. And I completely freaked out. I wasn't ready to be really, really honest. Okay. I, I ran away and I wrote my first novel, which will never see the light of day, but that's really how I learned to write. I got a manuscript assessor and a mentor and um, learned how to write while writing that novel and the 10 drafts of it. Okay. And then when I'd done more meditation and I was ready to get really, really honest, then I wrote Sex, Drugs and Meditation. Okay. Mm. And I, I would say, people would say, what are you writing? And I said, oh, it's about the first silent 10-day meditation retreat I went on. And they'd go, a book about a silent 10-day meditation retreat. That'll be really, really boring. <laughs> I bet it's far from boring. Well, you know, it, it got picked up by Pam McMillan. I sent it through, I think it was Manuscript Monday, just the open submission process. It oh, got, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it just got picked up out of the slush pile and um, they really loved it. And uh, I remember... Oh, there was a little in, a bit of interest from a TV production company and they wanted to turn it into a comedy series. <laughs> okay. And I was like, a comedy <laughs> series? And they You're went, like, that's not really where I was going with this story. <laughs> I, said, I know. And then I, I rang my publisher and I went, they want to turn it into a comedy series. And she went, yeah, your book is really funny. And I went, she said, and that's one of the reasons it got picked up. And I went, but that's my angst. It's, you know, my life story and, you know, everything that, that was went wrong and all the mistakes I made and, and, and my heart getting broken and all the drugs I used to take and, you know, she said, yeah. Oh, God, love you. You were thinking it wasn't supposed to be funny. And she said, yeah, it's funny. It's, she said it's black humour, but it's funny. And I think it's because um, it's just the way my mind works, which often is quite troublesome to me, but other people find it hilarious. So, 
Well, as long as you're keeping people entertained, I suppose that's not a bad thing, hey? One can only hope. Oh, dear. Well, that's something I'm definitely going to go back and have a look at because that sounds very, very interesting. So I'm definitely going to go back and check that book out. But we are here today to talk about your um, debut fiction novel titled The Lost, The Last, sorry, The Last of the Apple Blossom. And I was lucky, luckily enough to um, get an advanced reader copy and you were published through HarperCollins. So do you want to tell me a little bit about the journey um, to publication with HarperCollins with the book? Okay, so I think the major thing to talk about here is, once again, fear. I was just terrified to write this book. When the idea came to me, I was like, whoa, you know, who do you think you are, Judy Nunn? This is such a Judy Nunn book and she'd do it really well, but you've got no idea how to write a book this big uh, about this period in history um, in Tasmania and how the the Apple Isle just disappeared because of natural and economic disasters. Mm. And so I, it took me a while to kind of get over that fear and write it. And then when I was up to about draft four, and I will say, Hayley, by this stage, I had written three other novels that never got published. Okay. Um, and I'd written my memoir and the sequel to the memoir as well. Um, and I had in the process spent a lot of money on my writing, learning to write, doing courses and masterclasses and yep. manuscript assessments and all that kind of stuff. And I had sworn that I would no longer spend money on my writing. It was just ridiculous. But when I got to fourth, the fourth draft of The Last of the Apple Blossom, I went, you know what? This book is so different to anything I have written. It's so special to me. It means so much to me. Yeah. I actually want to work with either a manuscript assessor or a mentor. Okay. So I went to the Australian Society of Authors website page and they have a mentorship program and I was scanning through the list of available mentors and I was going, no, not quite, not a good fit, da-da-da-da-da. And then I saw Monica McInerney's name. Now, the idea for this book actually came to me the very day. Um, I interviewed Monica McInerney in the morning for a live event and that afternoon the idea for this book came to me. Okay. And I just went, this is amazing synchronicity, but I, uh, you know, I can't imagine Monica would be available. She's probably got a waiting list. So Monica and I have been in touch over the years. I've interviewed her about so many books when I was working in radio and done live events and stuff. So I had her email address and I emailed her and I said, I, you know, I'd love to do this mentorship with you, but are you available or is there a waiting list? And she went, no, I'd love to work with you. Wow. So by the time I got around to applying with the ASA, they said, oh, Monica's already been in touch. You know, you can, as soon as you pay the money, you can start, um, which would be fine, except Monica said, draft four, mm -mm. I won't read this until you've done six drafts. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I, I did. And then she worked with me on the next four drafts. She is, um, for her, it, it takes at least 10 drafts to get a book to where it should be or it needs to be. Wow. And, and at the end of uh, the 10th draft, she gave me her blessing. She said, I love this. You have written the book that I wanted to read. And so I, um, then pitched it to agents and got rejected by every single one I pitched to. Okay. Um, but I, I always had in the back of my head that this was a Harlequin book, Harlequin and Harper Collins book. I just thought that's where it would fit. 
And last year, the Romance Writers of Australia, uh, Australia's conference was virtual, was online. So I did a Zoom pitch with Nicola Robinson from Harlequin, but I couldn't wow. get the cam- I couldn't get the camera to work. Oh, <laughs> I can relate to that. Don't worry. I can definitely oh. relate. I had this old laptop that was re- had been reconditioned twice. It was on its last legs. And, yeah, I would have had to um, reboot the whole thing and start again. And you only get, you know, about seven minutes to pitch. Oh, wow. So we just ended up doing it on audio and I have got no idea what I said. But to do that pitch, you actually had to send in uh, the first few chapters and a synopsis. So Nicola already had that. And so at the end of this kind of botched, crazy pitch... <laughs> That's all a bit of a blur now, isn't it? It's a bit of a blur. Yes. She said, um, I'd, I'd send me the manuscript. And I said, whippee, so off it went. Um, and in the meantime, I kept pitching to other people because you just never know what if you're going to get a yes or a no. Very true. And um, she came back to me and she said, we're interested. I'd like to take it to acquisitions. Is it still available? And I went, Yeah. And so she said, okay, I'm going to take it to acquisitions on Tuesday. So when my memoir was published and I had the head of nonfiction from Pam Imlin saying she loved it and that her, the head of publishing had read it and she loved it, I actually thought I had a deal. And she went, no, 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 we haven't got it through acquisitions yet. So even if, you know, your commissioning editor loves, loves your book, doesn't guarantee that you'll get a book deal. Okay. So at acquisitions your commissioning editor has to pitch it and to sales and marketing and everybody else so it's a big deal anyway she said look I'm going to take to acquisitions on Tuesday and this was about this was Thursday I think and I thought oh you know I'm going to be on 10 hooks um it's going to be hard to get through the next few days but I oh, you know it's okay it's all right just breathe and then she rang me up the next day, which was the Friday, and said, oh, I'm sorry, um, not this Tuesday. It will be the following Tuesday. Oh, no, and you'd psyched yourself up. Oh, oh, Hayley, I <laughs> thought I was going to just die of nervous exhaustion before <laughs> that acquisition meeting. I can't begin to imagine. I really can't. <laughs> and then I was getting ready to go to book club on Monday evening and Nicola Coles and I think, oh, I have no idea what this is about. I pick up the phone. I'm halfway out the door. And uh, she says, we, we called a special acquisitions meeting this afternoon. This never happens, but it happened today. And we'd like to offer you a deal. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. How exciting. Uh, look, it was it was a bolt out of a blue. It, it kind of, it really took me by surprise because I had kind of my mind in book club and the fact that I was going to have to wait, you know, over a week to for my book to go to acquisitions and then Nicola's on the phone going, we'd like to offer you a deal. And I went, great. <laughs> Thank you. And you probably hung up from the call and thought, what just happened? Did that really just happen? <laughs> well, it's just really odd. And, and she said, oh, you know, people usually kind of, um, laugh or start crying or jump up and down and holler and I went yeah I bet they do <laughs> honestly Hayley I just felt relieved yeah, I think I, bet. I had and you know, it's the fourth novel I had written um, I'd already had some rejections for it despite Monica's endorsement I really thought because Monica liked it that it would be a shoe-in but when all the agents started rejecting me I just thought oh my god and I don't, I don't know. I haven't, don't know. So when when I was offered a deal, it was 
deep gratitude that I felt and relief. It's like, it's okay. This has finally happened after all this work and all these years of writing. It's finally happened. Yeah, good on you. Look, I am so glad that that the book got out there. So what I thought I'd do before we actually go into a little bit more, you know, that I want to ask you about the book, I might just read the blurb. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Okay. So 7th of February, 1967, walls of flame reduce much of Tasmania to ash. Young school teacher Catherine Turner rushes to the Hewan Valley to find her family's apple orchard destroyed, her childhood home in ruins and her brother dead. Despite her father's declaration that a woman will never run the orchard, Catherine resolves to rebuild the family business. After five sons, Catherine's friend and neighbour Annie Pearson is overjoyed by the birth of a much longed for daughter. As Annie and her husband Dave work to repair the damage to their own orchard, Dave's friend Mark pitches in. Despite that Fanny, oh Fanny, God I'll (laughs) say that again, Annie, not Fanny, wants him gone. Mark has moved his family to the valley to escape his life in Melbourne, but his wife has disappeared leaving chaos in her wake and their young son Charlie in Mark's care. Catherine becomes fond of Charlie, whose strange upbringing has left him shy and withdrawn. However, the growing friendship between Mark and Catherine not only scandalises the small community, but threatens a secret Annie is desperate to keep hidden. Through natural disasters, personal calamities and the devastating collapse of the apple industry, Catherine, Annie and those they battle to save, sorry, those they love, battle to save their livelihoods, their families and their secrets. So there you go. That is the blurb for the book. Mm, Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you, first of all, was um, when did you actually start writing the book? How long ago was it when you actually first put pen to paper? Uh, 2017. And like I said, when I got the idea for this book, um, it did terrify me and I tried to run away from it. I don't know if you've read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, but she says, you know, when an idea like this comes to you, you have to grab it. Um, but I didn't. I just ran in the opposite direction because I, I, I just thought I can't, I can't write this story. You know, a story that starts on the day of the 1967 bushfires that traces mm. the demise of the apple industry. I mean, who am I kidding? Yeah. Uh, can, can I actually do that? Am I a good enough writer to be able to do this? But I went to a writing retreat with the amazing Shelley Gensberg, who's a fabulous editor and um, mentor. Mm-hmm. And there were many tears as I broke through the fear about writing this book and and managed to write a few passages, some of which have ended up in the book. So then I went, okay, I'm doing this. So that's when the research started and there's a lot of research went into this book. In fact, the first draft was 142,000 words and when I started working on the second draft, I just went, oh, my God, even I'm bored by the amount of research <laughs> put into this book <laughs> and started pulling it out. And so, you know, I got to draft 10 and Monica was happy with it and when it got picked up, um, Nicola did the first edit and... Um, she just pulled out more. I wish she, you know, they, she suggested that I pull out more. Um, she calls it bog. You know, you get bogged down. and get bogged stuff. down, yep. Yeah, yep. Which, which she actually got from Victoria Perman, who writes for Harlequin HQ as well and um, does a lot of research and she calls it bog. So that's where Nicola got it from. Um, so I bet I did. I did a lot of research and I went to the Huon Valley and I spoke to old orchardists and a couple of their stories are in the book because they're such great stories. 
Uh, well, okay, because you've got some further stuff I wanted to, wanted to mm -hmm. ask you about that. But what I found interesting is um, obviously, you know, the devastating bushfires um, happened in 1967. So mm -hmm. you, you've actually put in the back of the book that you remember that time as a child. You mm -hmm. actually remember being in the classroom and having to lie on the floor in your underwear to cool down. So yeah. what do you actually recall about that time? I know you didn't actually grow up on an apple orchard, but you actually did live, you know, through those fires as a child, even though it wasn't on your doorstep. What do you actually remember? It must have been a devastating time. I think this is why I just remember it so clearly. I mean, someone asked me about the moon landing because the moon landing makes an appearance in the book. And I don't have very vivid memories of the moon landing at all, mm -hmm. mainly because it's just kind of like this vague, scratchy, flickery, black and white thing on a small TV in the corner of the room. But the fires, I think anyone who's gone through a bushfire of that magnitude, and it almost burnt the entire of Hobart, you know, there, there was a a late wind change that saved the CBD, but many of the suburbs of Hobart were burnt. Yeah. And so um, it was where we were in the suburbs of Hobart was in real danger. So I do remember, I remember the howling wind. I remember the intense heat. I remember the black sky and the choking smoke. And if you've ever been anywhere near bushfire, you'll never forget how huge the sun is, how huge and red it is. It's like you're on an alien planet. Mm. It's like everything has changed. And this isn't the planet that you know. It's a completely different environment. And I do remember um, going home to our place. So all the kids were evacuated from the schools and they were sent hopefully to safe places. And our home is at the bottom of Mount Nelson on Bend 1. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lounge room full of kids. And that scene is in the book as well. The mums were in the kitchen. Yes. And the dads were up the hill fighting this fire with wet gunny sacks and garden hoses. And no one knew whether there'd be fathers or homes to go home to because Hobart was on fire. Frightening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I remember all of that really clearly. Yeah, because I guess, um, you know, how did you actually approach writing about, you know, a, such a devastating event in Australian history, um, which could obviously be very traumatic and a trigger, you know, for somebody reading the book, if they actually experience that? How did you actually approach, approach that when you were writing the book? Look, that's a great question, Hayley, and it's one of the biggest fears I had. My two big fears were that I wouldn't be able to do justice to the orchardists who mm -hmm. just had a hell of a time through the time period. This book goes from 67, mainly from 67 to 77. Mm. And my other big fear was I knew that there were people still traumatised by the 1967 fires. Yeah, but and something I, that would never leave you, absolutely. Yeah. And um, fortunately, in some ways, the 50th anniversary was in 2017 and a lot of new material, um, oral histories, video snippets of people talking to cameras. So, you know, video booths were put up and people could, could go in and tell their story and their experience of the day. So okay. I got to listen and read and watch a lot of these. And as I did, I thought, okay, so these people went through it. They remember it. They're giving their memories. Um, they're on the internet. So clearly they're okay to talk about them. So that gave me more confidence and um, also gave me a greater sense of what it was like as an adult, because I was six, uh, as an adult going through all of that. And interestingly enough, when I was doing interviews down the Huon Valley, 
A few people said to me, you couldn't have got back down here from Hobart on that day. It was impassable. You might have been able to get down by a boat, but, you know, probably not even that. And I had found one story of a guy who was playing country cricket up in Hobart and he actually got back down to Signet and he told the story of how he did it. So that is the route that I give Catherine and that's how she gets home. Ah, that was the inspiration behind that part of the plot. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 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 So little gems everywhere. And those little gems gave me more confidence um, to be able to write about it. What I actually found really hard, though, in researching this was there's a lot of stories and a lot of information about the actual day, the few weeks afterwards, maybe a month or two. But when you're writing a book that goes through such a long period of time, there wasn't much about the long-term recovery and the long-term effects of a bushfire like that. But luckily enough, I found one book that was written in the mid-70s, completely out of print, but I got a very expensive secondhand copy off the internet. And that was called Bushfire Disaster. And it used the 67 bushfires as a case study of um, what not to do. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Fair enough. And it had all this amazing detail about um, the economic uh, aspects and um, implications, social implications, uh, what the government did right and wrong, um, where the funding went, how the funding worked. And um, it was hoping to use this as an example going forward so that people didn't make the same mistakes. And what I found fascinating is I was editing this during Black Summer, so 2019, 2020. Okay. And um, it was really quite harrowing, I have to say, because rewriting and rewriting and rewriting those chapters and then editing them while part of Australia was on fire, it felt like. I just went, you know, not much has changed. Firefighting techniques might have changed, but there's really nothing you can do when you've got a fire front just rushing at you. It's so massive and so powerful. There's not much you can do. One of the fire experts at the time of the 67 fires said that the fire had the equivalent of energy to three atomic bombs. Oh, wow. Yes. That's, yeah, that's insane, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. And that's the power of fire. I know it's you can't control it you can try and mitigate it you can try all kinds of things but when you have a howling wind and a massive fire front yeah there's nothing really anyone can do oh goodness me yeah it's just it's almost apocalyptic I I bet you know the memories that you have and that's the other thing you know growing up in Tassie and you would Go out. We used to go for Sunday drives when I was a kid, and there were just all these kind of ruins of houses, and with only the chimneys standing for decades afterwards. You know, people wouldn't rebuild. People left their homes and their land. Yeah, so it, it's, it was a tragedy that just kept on going. Yeah, because you know, you were saying that you've done a lot of research and you met a lot of um, apple growers and you, you visit a lot of orchards, so. How did you approach that research? Like, how did you actually map out where you were going to go and what you wanted to do and places you wanted to see? What what was the process? That's where my apple angel came in. Apple angel. Okay. Do tell. (laughs) So um, I'd done a lot of research and I'd listened to the the National Library did an apple and pear growers um, oral history project in the 2000s. So I was able to listen to these orchardists talk about the times that they went through, which was great. 
but I really, really wanted to speak with a female orchardist. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty hard to come by. And I wanted a female orchardist from the Huon Valley. So, you know, very rare indeed. But I managed to track down Naomi Clarkport. And I managed to track her down because she was Tasmanian Rural Woman of the Year back in the 90s, I think. So I found oh. a reference to that. And I just kept on going until I found her. So I called her out of the blue. I had three pages of questions that I wanted her to answer for me. And so I just rang her up on the off chance. She she um, picked up her mobile phone and, and I said, I've got some questions about apple growing. Can I ask you? And, you know, when do you have time? And she went, oh, now's a good time. So I started asking her all these questions. <laughs> and as I went on and on and on, she just started to laugh. And she said, Mary Lou, you're not going to even need a third of this information for this book you're writing. And um, I said, well, I'm coming down the Huon Valley, you know, because um, I really want to get the lay of the land again even though I'd been many there many times when when I was young and when I was busy but I wanted to see it with different eyes and she said come down I'll give you a tour of my orchard and the packing sheds and the cool room Uh, I'll take you on a tour of the Huon Valley and we'll have a look at you know the different layouts of how the orchards were because there aren't many orchards left anymore down there yeah sadly yes and um and she said and I'll introduce you to some old orchardists who lived through the times that you're writing about. Oh, wow. What an opportunity. Wasn't she wonderful doing that for you? And this was on our very first phone call and I was just gobsmacked. And I said, this is incredible. Thank you. Why are you being so generous? And she said, because you didn't just call me up and say, tell me about apples. You know, you'd already done so much work. Clearly you're serious about this and I want to help you and I do whatever is necessary so you can write this book. So when Fantastic. I got down there, she kept all her promises. We stood in her orchard, some of the trees in that orchard, 160 years old because her family, she's a family of orchardists that goes back six generations and they were the first apple orchard in the region. And um, we bought lots of cakes and treats and went off for morning and afternoon teas to the old orchardist houses and I just got so much information from them. It was sensational stuff that I could never get from the internet, all the hours and days and days that I spent um, in the reference library at uh, the Hobart Library. And and there was lots of great stuff that they dug out of the archives for me at the library. But to be able to talk to people who went through it and um, how they did things back then, because apple growing, the techniques of apple growing, it's it's like, I knew nothing about I knew nothing about growing apples, but then there's the fact that apple growing techniques have changed dramatically since the 1960s. So I had to get that right as well. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I have to ask, so is Catherine, is she based on anyone that you met? No, 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 no one. I knew I wanted a strong young woman because she was going to really, um, say, put through her paces, but there was going to be a lot of stuff thrown at her. And um, in the 60s, teaching or nursing, they were pretty much the only careers that women could have. That's Um, right. She was very much pigeonholed, wasn't she, due to the time and the challenges that women face. So that was Mm -hmm. a very interesting thing to read within the story, part of history, definitely. But, you know, if I had to say um, which of the characters I relate most to in the book, it would be her. 
-hmm. And it's this kind of sense of getting the job done, persevering no matter what. Um, you know, is it perseverance or is it stubbornness? Because I'm very stubborn too, and she is very stubborn. Yes, times. yes. And she's a, she's an incredibly hard worker. She will just work and work and work, sometimes to her own detriment. And she has you know, a father who's trying to stonewall her at every turn because uh, he doesn't want her taking over the orchard. And also, you know, all the things that women were barred from in those times. I mean, 66 was when the marriage bar was lifted so you, a woman could finally get married and keep her job. Yes. But still, if, she, if a woman got pregnant, she'd still have to resign. And um, equal pay coming in. All kinds of things started changing for women back then. And I, have, I do have Catherine um, making mention of reading The Female Eunuch and a bit later on in the story and how that impacted her. I don't go into it deeply. It's just it helps, it helps her make up her mind about a few things, that's all. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, with the whole book being um, set from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, just how much did you have to research about Australia back then? Because I'm actually writing a little novella at the moment called Not Dead Yet. And it's about a 71-year-old lady who loses her husband, moves to a retirement village and having to adjust to that life. But there are flashbacks to her teenage years in the 1960s in Sydney. You know, so I had to look up simple things like, you know, when did the golden gay time or the paddle pop, you know, when, when was it invented? You know, because I thought I can't talk about that if they didn't exist. You know, so I have a new found respect for people that need to research for, you know, historical novels, you know. So how much did you have to research? Just, I mean, I know you were a child back then, but you weren't an adult. So how much did you have to look into how things were in the country in the, in the 60s? It was an enormous amount of research, Haley. It really was yeah a phenomenal amount and and you're right it's just these little things like you said were paddle pops around there that's right so just this the smallest things and even the way people spoke so listening to uh, or watching um, videos from the 1960s reading newspaper articles from back then all that kind of stuff that really helps so you get a, a sense of the lingo but then again you know you have people in cities who would speak differently to people in the rural areas as well so somewhere along well you know as far as people speak and how they express themselves it, you just need to make a decision of how you're going to do that but writing historical fiction, you really can't get the facts wrong because people will pick you up on them. And I've had some feedback from people who grew up in Tasmania around apple orchards through the years that I write about, and they've said, you've got it right. I remember that, and that's how I remember it. Wow. And that, to me, has been the greatest feedback of all. I mean, I love the beautiful reviews that people have written. I'm incredibly grateful for them, and thank you all <laughs> for doing yeah. it. Yeah, But when you get a 76-year-old woman saying, I had young kids during the fire, uh, my grandparents had an apple orchard down the Huon Valley, and then another woman saying, I grew up in an apple orchard, I remember those times, and you've brought it all back for me as if it was today. And so I think Isn't that, that beautiful that enormous amount of research I did, even though you end up pulling a lot of it out, it still imbues the writing. It's still all in there. Oh, absolutely. And look, you know, the setting of the book is obviously during the fires, but what actually inspired the plot, you know, the, the friendships, the marriage, the hardship and all the, the hidden secrets and the relationships between all the main characters? What inspired that storyline and the plot for you? 
I wanted to have um, two good friends on Neighbouring Orchards. This book originally was called Two Orchards. Okay. Um, Annie's the wife of an orchardist, but the wives always ran the packing sheds, so, you know, they were responsible for a lot. Um, and I and I wanted this feisty young woman who who would end up taking taking over the orchard. Mm-hmm. It, with historical fiction, you know, in my limited experience, the history kind of defines the overall overall story arc, but then you need to to write in the personal story arcs as well and the changes that they go through. Yeah, so absolutely. That. That evolved over time. I always knew what the secret was going to be. I always knew how that was going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. What I didn't have was the ending, and that was actually very hard to find because I knew because I'm you know I'm writing a particular genre that I had to have a happy ending. Um, a happy ending or happy for now is what most yeah. people want, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And that and and because it was such a hard time for the orchardists, I just I I despaired of ever finding it. So back to you know meditation, I actually went off on another 10-day silent meditation retreat. Because what I find is um the subconscious will come up with answers for you. And when you're meditating 12 hours a day, it will really come up with the goods. Yeah. yeah, it's supposed to be slowing your mind down, which is almost impossible for me. Um, but I came out of that 10-day meditation retreat with the happy ending, which I'm really, really grateful for. That's amazing because it does make you laugh. My my light bulb moments come at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm sort of halfway between sleep and wake and I get up to pee and I go, oh, my God, I must write that down. You know? so that's when it happens for me at the most inopportune times. Well, when again, in, that subconscious, you know? Yeah, and when you're in deep meditation, you're in exactly that same spot, I think, between waking and sleep, between the conscious and subconscious. It's it's like the membrane between the conscious and subconscious just stretches thinner and thinner and thinner. You know, it's, it's a very, very state of, different state of being. Yeah, it's very powerful though, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I was just going, and I was going to ask you too. Like, there's some very complex, um, you know, relationships in the story. But there's a lovely relationship between Catherine and little Charlie, Mark's son. You know, because this little boy had sort of been abandoned by his mother and was a bit lost. So I really loved the relationship between them. And what inspired that sort of relationship with those characters? I needed a, a link for um, Catherine and Mark. Mm-hmm. And because she'd lost her younger brother in the fire and she had such a deep sense of grief and was feeling so lost herself, when she meets this young boy, and he's, he's only three um, when she meets him. And yeah, he, he was very young, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he is, he's lost his... Um, his you know, he's come down to Tassie with his family from Melbourne. His mum has disappeared and his dad is in a bit of a state. And so Catherine is able to focus her love and her sense of wanting to kind of look after this little boy on him because she used to dote on Peter, her little brother, when he yes. was young. So she kind of she transfers that to him and, and Charlie the young boy bring, brings her back to life in some way. So they give each other hope 
they yeah. give each other that sense of connection and that sense of love. Yeah, it was, it's a lovely of, relationship. It was one of my favourite relationships in the mm. book. I just thought it was lovely. Because really at the beginning of the book, things are a bit bleak. And so I, I wanted a ray of light in there. And that's what that's what Charlie and, and Catherine and, and how they respond to each other. I know. And, and Mark, when he hears his son laugh and realises that he actually never really heard his son laugh before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that brings a lot of light and hope into the story at that point. Yeah, well, you certainly did that well. I just thought that was a lovely relationship. Mm, thank you. And there, like, there are some other complex relationships in the story and obviously characters, um, you know, keeping secrets from each other. So mm. why do you think all those complex issues will resonate with your readers? What do people love about a storyline that, you know, contains secrets and, yeah, what, what, what will resonate with your readers? Because I certainly thought it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. For me, um, this story is about love and resilience and friendship and yep. In, intertwined into all that is human foibles and human failings and how, how love will kind of can sometimes twist things. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one because we believe in love and we all want to be loved, but sometimes I guess it's more passion than love. People get this kind of burning passion for something and it kind of it twists stuff. Yeah. So um, I just I wanted to explore how that would affect people's lives and um, this friendship and marriages and all kinds of things. So I'm not sure if I'm answering the question for you. <laughs> no, no, I just because there's so many, um, you know, complex components of all those relationships that I think every reader who picks up your book will will relate to a character or a situation in that story. I, I really do think it, it's about passion and people wanting me out to follow a dream of sort or something that they've just yearned for for so long yeah those, absolutely those yeah but often I Hayley sometimes you know it's like I didn't know my memoir was funny you know <laughs> it's, it's like you write a book Surprise. and you go oh look at that look at what I've done there <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't intentional at all but hey that that seems to be working so I wouldn't say that everything in that book, I went, okay, I'm doing this here and this means this and I want this, but it, it kind of evolves. You just yep. keep writing and things evolve and you go, yeah, actually that's working. I will say um, I'm in a writing group. We've been together for 13 years. Um, oh, that's a long time. Yeah, okay. We started off with five or six of us. We're down to three, um, but we really support each other through. And so they... Uh, I don't even let people read a second draft. I So I wouldn't let them read it until the third draft. And I had just made such a big mistake. You know, I was this massive clunker because I, you know, I had taken the reader on this journey with one of the characters and then I just had to do a complete nut of face about. Yeah, 360. Yep. Because she ends up turning in the opposite direction on the, on the head of a pin. And they just went, you can't do that. That makes no sense at all. So a book evolves. You know, that was the third draft and I had this really clanging error, error in it that I needed other people to point out to me and go, no, 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 Mary Lou, that is so badly wrong. Yep. So it's not as if I sat down with this perfect book in my head and just wrote it. It, it, it evolves over many, many drafts until you 
get motivations and, and um, consequences. And when I was working with Monica McInerney, um, there were a few things. She said, oh, I don't know why this character would do what they did. So I told her, it took me about 10, 10 minutes to tell her why this character did what they did. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, my God, now I totally understand. But none of that is on the page. You have to write that into the book. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. I mean, just the, you know, the insight and feedback that other people give you is just invaluable, isn't it? Because I think, you know, it's, it's, it's your little baby while you're writing the book and you've got such a passion for it. But I think you're so intensely involved in it that you're the one who misses things quite often. And it's interesting, isn't it? Well, it makes perfect sense to the writer because the writer knows exactly what's going on. That's right. Yeah. But it makes no sense at all to the, to the reader unless you make it clear. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. you go, well, you know, you, you know that that's what's going on with her. And they go, well, no, that's not that's not coming across clear on the page at all to the yeah. reader. But to yeah. you, it makes complete sense. Yeah, very, very true. So I have to ask, I don't want to, I don't want to talk too much more about The Last of the Apple Blossom because I don't want to give too much away because people need to read this book. And trust me, they will enjoy it because I certainly did. Mm-hmm. So are you working on anything at the moment? I'm going through my process again and I have discovered this. Uh, so when I was um, writing my memoir, Sex, Drugs and Meditation, I, you know, I had all that fear about getting really honest and I put it to one side and I couldn't go back to it until I was ready to be honest. Mm-hmm. With the apple blossom, I got the idea and it scared me so much. You know, that fear came up again and I tried to run away from it. And I've gone, I'm going exactly through. Well, I'm just pushed, I've just pushed through it actually with the latest book that I'm writing. It's too big. I can't do it justice um, because it's based on true facts. Um, okay. Are there any other kind of facts other than true facts? But anyway, it's based on fact. <laughs> okay. And people are, are still alive. And that's the thing about writing about recent history. People are still alive. They know what happened. They were there. How, how are they going to respond to it? And really what I have to do is just put all that aside. And it's just fear and fear stops me from doing anything. And fear is really boring because it just keeps me stuck in the same place. So okay. I, I, I worked out what was happening and what I was doing and I was following this familiar pattern again and went, well, you ha- you're going to break through this at some stage, so why don't you break through it now? And I had a lot of support um, and some valuable input about fear and writing and um, just, and I wrote down all my fears and there were a lot of them yep. and then ways to put that aside as well and I will say having done Fiona McIntosh's masterclass her, her commercial fiction masterclass one of the things she says actually the first thing she says is nobody cares nobody okay. cares about your book the world does not need your book and she says the less I care the better I write and that totally confused me until I put it into practice until I find something you know that's really really hard or I'm having trouble with something to do with the whole publishing business and the writing business and those, her words come to me nobody cares and this weight just lifts off my shoulders it's like nobody cares so just write just yeah write. wow that's that's interesting <laughs> isn't it <laughs> write what you want to you know it's that whole thing like you know dance as if no one's watching it's yeah. that thing but put into writing nobody cares and when I remember that that really frees me up and the fear goes away so wow. the other thing that I have found um, 
so the last of the apple blossom and I cried a lot when I was writing that book and um, I still cry sometimes when I think about it and so for this latest book I'm writing I actually had to to find that deep melancholy heart of the story okay so so it became so personal and um, so intense that it becomes a driving force for me because you know it took me years with the apple blossom and this next book will take me years and yes. I have a, I only have a one book deal I don't have you know a guaranteed publisher for this next book it may never get published I'm in the I'm in the same position as I was with the last of the apple blossom I wasn't on contract I'm not on contract now for a new okay. book uh, so it is a total act of faith an yeah. act of faith so I need to write something that's important to me that that really touches my soul to get me through the amount of work and time it takes to write a novel yeah I agree I think you really have to have a passion for the story don't you it has to resonate with you and mean a lot to you for you to push through all that work and get to the finish line I totally agree with you yeah 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 and um do you actually have this? I love asking people this question. Do you have a dedicated writing space or are you like me where you've got notepads all over the house, in the glove box, in the car, on your desk at work? You know, do you have actually have a dedicated space at work, um, at home where you just, that's the only space where you sit and write? That's a great question. And I sometimes house sit for friends and I did a house sit recently and I couldn't find a place to write. I could not find the right spot. And I have um, ownership of the spare room. My husband has ownership of the um, garage and that's called Fred. Oh, interesting. It's it's (laughs) not a shed. It's not a shed. It's a Fred. (laughs) And I have ownership of the spare room and she's called Wilma. So Fred and Wilma, people will probably get the reference. Love it. Yep. And so Wilma is my space and I've got this massive kind of trestle table with all my research and bits and pieces and books and pens and files and all kinds of stuff and uh, a very comfy chair that was really quite expensive but there is a single bed in this room and that's where I write I kind of make myself a nest on the bed Mm. and I can't stand sitting at a desk anymore it hurts my back I can't and I, I needed something else. And as soon as I kind of nestle in to this little kind of cosy hidey hole I make surrounded by cushions on the bed, it's like the, the writing genie or the muse or whatever or the spirit of writing just comes into me. Long-term meditators will relate to this. You, you have a designated meditation spot. And and that's where you meditate. And so when you sit in that spot, you just slip really easily into the meditative meditative state. And that's what this little spot on my bed. So the creative juices just start flowing once you're in your little posse. I I kind of feel safe, you know. It's like, yes, this is where it happens and you're safe here. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to do much more house sitting because I really want to write this book. How, how far along are you in the process of writing this book at the moment? Where are, where are you at? I have all the characters. I have the story arc and I'm probably, oh, probably about a fifth of the way through as far as getting words on the page. 
um, but I have no idea if any of them will actually be in the final book. It's it's very nebulous at the moment. It's kind of amorphous, even though I know the characters really well. But um, And this is the first time where I haven't written chronologically because the characters don't meet until all three of them don't meet until about uh, a bit over halfway through the book. So I can oh, write their okay. stories separately. So they're all following the same timeline and the same events, but they're in different spaces and, and very different head spaces as well. Okay. And how much of a plotter are you? The interesting thing with um, the kind of writing I'm doing now is with historical fiction, you have events. And so your plot is is kind of set out already for you. Well, in, in what I've done. Mm-hmm. I know with The Last of the Apple Blossom, you have the fires, you have um, stuff like The Man on the Moon, you have um, the um, when England joined the common market, you have the tree pool schemes. So you yeah. kind of have this overarching story arc. And, and that's what I have with this. And I have ideas of where my characters are going to go and what they're going to do. And for this book, I actually have the ending. I know exactly what the ending is and what happens. But everything in between at the moment. So I'm a, what am I, a a plantser? Yeah, so you're sort of half and half. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I am a complete panster. I'm a complete panster. Okay. I tell everyone that and it's a miracle that I, I forget a book finish, but somehow I get there in the end. So it's interesting, isn't it? We're all very different. So why would you say you're a bit of both? What, what's your actual process? Uh, well, with writing um, like historicals, as I said, you know, you, you've got this, the kind of the main story laid out for you. And I have a timeline of events for what happened in this next book, which is all based on fact. Yep. And um the same with The Last of the Apple Blossom. So you've got these kind of points of tension and points of drama already there for you. It's it's just that everything that happens in between and how people react to it, I don't you know, I do in the moment. I mean, I, I know writers who write 10 or 15 pages of synopsis, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then they sit down and write the book and they cannot bear to pants because to them that's a waste of time and words. And that's the thing when you do pants, you might end up in a place that doesn't work. Yes. Or, or isn't true to the characters or whatever and you've got to just ditch all that and start again. Yep. But I'm not that person. I find it hard enough to write, you know, a one-page synopsis. I'm not going to write 15 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to I want to get on with the writing I want to get into the story I, you know so and the thing is if I do write a big plan I kind of go oh well, I've already written the book I know exactly what's going to happen and it takes all the energy out of it for me I like being surprised by my characters I like not knowing exactly where they're going to go or say or do yeah so sometimes they surprise you don't they and you think oh my god I didn't think it was going to go in that direction yeah it happens to me all the time Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So um, what else was I going to ask you? That's gone right out of my brain. That's all right. It happens to me all the time. 
<laughs> well, look, I'd, honestly, keep doing what you're doing because I just think The Last of the Apple Blossom was a lovely, you know, family drama. Um, it, it, you know, it resonated with me, just, you know, the events that happened back in Tasmania and the, and the trauma and the resilience of the characters. It was just a wonderful story. So please keep doing what you're doing. And I really look forward to, you know, seeing what you come up with next. Thank you, Hayley. And I really appreciate having this chat with you and the beautiful questions, great questions. So thank you. That's all right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap things up? Look, I just wanted to say, and I, and I did a past to publication um, recording for Taz Writers recently, and she yep. brought up the fact that there's also actually quite a bit of humour towards <laughs> the last bits of this book. You know, a couple of new characters arrive in the valley and um very true yeah yeah so I know you know the topic and what we've talked about tonight it all it all sounds pretty heavy but there are moments of absolute joy and light and yeah that and there are very there are a few little light-hearted moments there you're right which which is lovely yeah and so much love I think that's the thing in this book for me it's just so much love love of the land family love um, love between friends and of course romantic love because there is this really big love story that plays out all the way through the book yes and and you know love of a way of life and people trying to hang on to a way of life that they did love and that was crumbling around them which is the tragedy of the book yeah but, but still that that love is still there yeah and and how people pull you know really pulled together when they needed to which was which was lovely mm. Yeah. yeah. Now, look, where can people find you online? Okay. Um, so maryloustevens.com.au and I'm Stevens with a PH. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to be Mary Lou Thorpe without an E. And when I got married, God, <laughs> I was in my early 40s. I thought, oh, people will finally start spelling my name right because everyone puts an E on Thorpe and I didn't have an E. And then, of course, now it's Stevens with a PH, not a V. <laughs> So you've gone through your whole life having to spell it out for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Mary Lou Stevens, Stevens with a PH. Um, I'm on Instagram, Mary Lou Stevens writes and um, Facebook, of course. And we met on Twitter, Hayley. Oh, look, you know, I have made so many friends and met so many wonderful people on Twitter. Um, I don't know where I would be without the writing community on Twitter. It's absolutely wonderful. Would you agree? Yes, a lot of people avoid Twitter because things can get very ugly very quickly on Twitter, but not in the writing community. The writing community on Twitter is very supportive, really helpful. And I know that when my book launch was cancelled and things started to fall over when the lockdown was called here in Southeast Queensland mm. so quickly. And I there were people on Twitter saying, you know, another author um, affected by lockdown let's support Mary Lou's book and they were tweeting and retweeting and, and it's just like wow you know yeah, it's wonderful you. isn't it and I'm in a debut um authors group um I'm not a debut author but I'm a debut novelist so they let me in and we all met on Twitter yeah. so it can be a really great place a really good community yeah, it's amazing because my last interview, it hasn't aired yet, but I interviewed the lovely Bex from Bex Books and Stuff. She runs a book blog. And she was saying that, that in real Twitter, as, as she put it, you know, there's quite a lot of trolls and, and nasty people, but you just don't find that in the writing community. Everyone is supportive. Everyone retweets. You know, everyone comes to your rescue. It's just such a wonderful, supportive community. It is. And I was accidentally tagged on a very ugly um, Twitter stream and it's, it was just like, oh. I don't know how this happened, but I don't want to be here. 
So I just had to block and mute and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that was unfortunate. So I have seen the ugly side of Twitter. Um, but wow. yeah, just, just hang out with the nice people. Hang out with the writers if you go on Twitter. Yes. And as I said to Bex, we'll all just stay here in our safe little writing bubble. We're quite happy. Thank you very much. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Well, look, look, thanks again for joining me and congratulations on the book's release. And I really look forward to reading more stuff from you. Thank you, Hayley. All right, guys. Remember, when we write, we can't go wrong. And until next time, bye for now.